You guys ready for this series? Sweet, me too. So we're going to do four weeks called Breaking Idols. And we're going to talk about defining and understanding idolatry this week. We're going to talk about figuring out what our idols are and sort of facing them next week. We're going to talk about why, the third week, we're going we're to talk about how the number one tool to destroying our idols is having a view of the supremacy of God in all things. That in order to kill sin, what you need is a big God. And we're going to talk about the big God that is. And then the fourth week, we're going to talk about what it is we have left to do. To what extent is discipline and action on our part necessary? And so how do we do these things that church is always called spiritual disciplines? How do we do those in a way that isn't religious and in a way that, that is, is weighty and, and, and wrecks us? How do we do it in a way that causes our ability to triumph over sin in Christ to grow? That's what we're going to do. So this week, I want to focus on what idolatry is because I think we need a really clear picture of this. And I don't think that most of the time we have a very clear picture of this. So I think it's worth looking at. The primary biblical picture of idolatry, sin, and self-salvation in the Old Testament, the primary picture, the picture that's used more often than anything else and that's used very aggressively is adultery and prostitution. Okay? Now that's meant to affect you. The picture in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, of what idolatry really is is adultery and prostitution. Some examples of this would be Leviticus 7-7, Deuteronomy. These, these passages, the whole book of Hosea is about this issue. Ezekiel 16 and 26. And um, though I'm going to read you a, a pretty graphic section, I want to tell you I am not reading you the most graphic. Because I decided sometime this week the real reason I wanted to do that was to scandalize you and that that wasn't very holy, even though I could get away with it because it's the Bible. So um, what I want to read for you is Ezekiel 16 verses 1 to 19. And if you could move the slide forward as I read, that would help me so I won't have to break my reading. Um, you might look that up in your Bible. If, if you like, I'm going to read um, the first 19 verses of, of Ezekiel 16. And you can sort of picture this. I mean, you can picture a husband who's married to a wife who comes home at 5 a.m. and sleeps till 2 every day. He works, he takes care of the kids, and she does God knows what. And it's gone on for a decade. And he sits her down, and, th- and th- this, is sort of, this is that conversation, and God is having it with his people. And it's been a long time coming, and he's tried a lot of things. And and finally, it was time to have this conversation. And so I, wanna, I, I just want to start off, Lance, I'll just read the conversation for you, okay? So let's just—and he, and here's the thing. Don't just listen. You imagine a husband and a wife, a king talking to his wife, queen. The, imagine the conversation, okay? The word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say— This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother Hittite. That is, your parents were prostitutes. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity, or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. 
Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, and on the day you were born, you were despised. And then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. And I made you grow like a plant in the field. And you grew up and you developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. And later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with embroidered dress and I put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewels. I put bracelets on your arm and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. And you became very beautiful. And you rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because, the, because of the splendor I had given you, your, you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty. And you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of the garments to make gaudy high places in which you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them the idols, and you offered my oil and incense before them, and also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, honey, I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrance before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And it just gets worse from there. A lot worse. I don't know the last time you imagined God having that talk with you. If ever. Even, the, even when you came to Christ. You were like, yeah, I'm a sinner. I mean, I don't, but the Jewish people, this is, this is pointed at the Jewish people. It's a particular time in history with Jerusalem. Who, but it's so, this theme is so spread throughout the Bible that this is, the con- this is a normal human condition. This is what happens to human beings. Human beings are idolaters. And God is trying to make clear how he feels about it. Because you see, we, we have a very difficult time metabolizing spiritually the, the idea of wrath. 
We do not walk around with this very keen sense of how idolatry and how we live and how we think and how we behave and how we do things, how it, when it is not God glorifying and God honoring and in God's will, it is horrifyingly offensive. And he's trying to help us understand what it's like to be the husband of such a wife. And he's, he's like, this is what it's like. This, and I have not read you all of it, and I have not read you the most graphic portions. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to look at four questions. I want to look at what is idolatry biblically? Why are we so prone to it? Three, what is our duty and what is our immediate duty? And those two will make sense when we get there, I promise. And I'm going to try to manage time a little better. Okay, idolatry is anything we look to other than God and the gospel for our salvation. Now, you got to know what salvation means, obviously, in that definition. Our salvation is what we think is going to get us what we want. It's the, it is the good life. Now, God tells us what salvation ought to be, but we all have our own view of what salvation is, and sometimes those don't, don't match up. But salvation is the fulfillment of, of our deepest desires. It's our for rescue, for eternity, for provision, for affirmation, for significance, for comfort, for development, for belonging, for achieving, for enjoying. All of those things are wrapped up in what we see the good life being, and we are meant to look to God as the object and as the means of all of those things. And when we don't do that, and we look to something else to provide for us what we most deeply need, that's idolatry. And for some things, um, God is the means. And so if, if you take, take comfort, for example, you could say, okay, we have a deep need for comfort. Well, one way we can be comforted is God can bring certain things into your life that are comforting. Certain relationships and so on, right? Events, people. But there's another level in which God is himself the object of our comfort in that the gospel comforts us. The promise of heaven comforts us. Things that come directly from God and that are bound up in who God is himself, that he is himself the fulfillment of that thing when God is the object or he's the means. But he's one of those two for everything. And when he's not, idolatry is always present. All right, hold on. I got to get my whiteboard. So one— Sorry if you can't see it. We'll have to get iMag or something. One of the um, ways, therefore, to define idolatry is that idolatry is seeking another provider. See, that makes sense. When you put it in the context of adultery, husband and wife, then it makes sense the husband would be the provider. And idolatry essentially becomes looking for another provider of anything. <clears throat> and so you can look at uh, adultery sort of this way, that you have the true husband, God in this case, saying, I'll something you well. I will love you well. I will comfort you well. I will provide for you well. I will give pleasure into your life well. I will I will affirm you well. I will provide everything. I will do it. God is saying, I will do it well. You do not need to look to something else. I will do it for you, and I will do it beautifully for you, right? And there, but yet there is something else that says, I'll do that better now 
and your way. <clears throat> and so if you think of if you think of the Gospel and Life series, there were two weeks. There was the self-salvation religion versus gospel week that talked about self-salvation. And we didn't talk much about sin, but we talked about self-salvation and idolatry. Well, it's all bound up together because when we decide to go from here to here, what are we doing? We're taking the provision into our own hands, aren't we? We're saying, I'll provide for myself. I'm going to go, I'm going em- to enter into an economic relationship here. He's, this person's going to give me something. I'm going to go get it from them. As opposed to a trust relationship here. A covenantal relationship. A, a mutual love and commitment relationship. And so this, just the going over, is self-salvation. Salvation. And that can be either religiously, this person can be promising, I'll help you manipulate God if you do all the right things. Or it can be irreligiously, I'll help you get free of that controlling husband who we both hate. Either way, but it's self-salvation. This, right, is the idol. The thing we turn to for our self-salvation. And whatever happens in the relationship between those two is what? This is participatory. Sin. So you see, if you could get confused and say, okay, wait, idolatry, you've got talking about religion and self-salvation, and then I know we, sin is in the Bible. It's like you've got all these different categories for bad. This is how they go together. This decision to break faith and trust and to put faith and trust here based on a relationship we try to find, that's self-salvation. It's the opposite of faith and trust in God. This, the thing we come to is the idol. And the nature of the relationship, everything we do to get from the idol what we want, is going to be sin. Always. That's how it lays down. I I hope that's clear. And so, um, so therefore, the technical definition of Idolatry would be something like this. Idolatry is seeking any part of our salvation in something other than God himself or the means God provides. And the biblical picture of idolatry is idolatry is spiritual adultery and salvation prostitution. Idolatry is spiritual adultery and salvation prostitution. And you can see, therefore, that faith— Right? Salvation is by faith, right? You can see how that works because staying with him is to believe and trust, right? That's faith. To go to him is to not believe and trust. It's to believe and trust him. It's the opposite of faith. And so, you see, sin or idolatry is the opposite of faith. It is. And the result of faith is always going to be turning away from sin because sin happens over here. Sin always happens when there's an idol and we're worshiping it and going to it and seeking provision through it. And so that's when sin happens. The minute we turn to this provider, this stops. For the most part. And so that's that's why we can both say, listen, as a Christian— 
there should be a really deep effect on sin in our life. We should become more morally upright people. Something that could really be called righteousness, that isn't self-righteousness, really should be evident among us. Not because we're moralists, or we're seeking self-salvation, or we're trying to be better than people, but that a rejection of sin is always bound up in turning in trust to God. But we are either going to stand here in trust, or we're going to run over here out of lust. That's a fun little rhyme, isn't it? Okay, so second. Why are we so prone to this? There's a sense in Scripture, as you read these passages over and over again, both in the Old and New Testament, that we, we are so prone to spiritual adultery and salvation prostitution. We're so prone to idolatry. There's a, this verse in Jeremiah 20 to 25, he says this. This is, again, God talking to his people. He says, Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree you lay down as a prostitute. See how you behaved in the valley? Consider what you've done. You are a swift she-camel, running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves out. At mating time they will find— see, You see the imagery here? It's, it's, there's, there's this like wantonness, this drivenness in God, even in God's covenant people for idolatry. And it's a, and the, and one of the questions you have to ask is, is the problem the idols or is the problem the idolater? Because it's, it would be really easy to say, there's just so much great stuff out there that God says we can't have. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what people think who don't have a big view of God. We'll talk about that on th- week three. If you don't believe in the supremacy of God, you will ultimately have a view of the world that there are a lot of amazing things out there that God says we can't have and say, ask you to trust him when he says he'll do this. But what he really means is I'll blank you slowly or not at all. That's what we really think. And so this seems really cool. But here's, here's how we know that that's not the case. Here's how we know. Because we can make idols out of good things that God gives us. God can give us something perfectly pure and perfectly good to be loved in him and is from him, and we can turn it into an idol. We can turn our kids into an idol, right? We can turn good work into an idol. We can turn all kinds of callings and time use and leisure and almost everything good that we have in our life, money, we have the capacity to make an idol out of it. The problem isn't so much that we are too tempted because the world is too tempting. The problem is really something more like that we're the sort of person who's easily tempted. That is, to use the colloquial cultural expression, we're sort of like a spiritually romantic loser magnet. (laughs) You know, having one bad relationship is a mistake. Having 18 is a series. You know, that's a, there's a, there's a problem, right? And, and when you know this is true about us, when we're constantly prone, like there's, 
when God talks about this, he, he doesn't fault the idols. He faults the people. He says, how, can, how could you do this? He turns to his wife, he's, he always, how could you turn, how could you turn to them? And when he talks about the idols, all he says about the idols is that they're nothing. Right? That, you know, he, they're, they're wood. They're, I mean, you read about how he talks about the idols in the Bible. He says, they're wood, they're stone, they're nothing. They can't help you. They can't do anything for you. They don't love you. But why do you turn to them? Right? The, the focus is on is on the wife, not the idol, right? But the, the, but there's a, the problem is, and it's, it's very important to see this, is that in, in the New Testament, if you could move the slides on this too, that'd be great. Um, the Bible teaches that there is something very wrong in us. And this is something our culture doesn't really believe in, but that is perhaps the most empirically verifiable thing there is in the world, but that the Bible insists on everywhere, is that there is something wrong in us. And you cannot understand idolatry or Christian faith or any of these things without understanding this point. Um, I'm, let me read Romans 8, 1 to 14. And I'm going to read the English Standard Version because in the NIV, the word flesh is translated sinful nature, which is, I think, I'm going to explain that. I think that's an okay translation. But I want you to see how this word shows up again and again in this passage. And I want to move from there, okay? This is Romans 8, 1, 4. Therefore, there is, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh— to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay. Now, it's important to get straight, if we can, what the apostle means by the flesh. Because there are two mistakes, which is in one of these two things, almost everybody assumes immediately is what's meant here, and both of them are wrong, and both of them will give you a very skewed view of spirituality. So it sounds like an aside, it's important, okay? Um, by the flesh, he does not mean the physical body. 
It is not this dualistic idea of you've got, the, you've got your, your spirit and your body and coming out of your physical body is everything bad and coming out of your spirit hopefully are, are good things and God will empower you through the Holy Spirit to overcome that evil flesh thing that you're in and to live by the Spirit. Now, there's two problems with that. First is that um, the body is part of Christianity from beginning to end. God creates us not—we don't get a body when we fell into sin in Genesis, right? We have a body already. And in heaven, the Bible teaches, we'll be embodied also. The problem is not the body. You see, a lot of ancient people believed that the body fell away, and the spirit lived on, and the body was bad, and the spirit is good. And a lot of people accused Christianity of thinking that. Christianity does not think that. It never has. In fact, it says right in that passage that the spirit— if we, if we kill the flesh and we receive the Spirit, what will that do? It, the Spirit will give life to our mortal bodies, it says. If you kill the flesh, the body will live. <laughs> do you, hear, you see that saying? The, the physical body, our physical, will be animated properly if we kill the flesh and we receive the Spirit. The, the point being— He's not referring to the physical body. So the second mistake that's often made is that it's basically our lower desires, our lusts, our hormonal endocrine drives. That it's, and this is very, this is very common in, well, in last turn of century theological liberalism where the idea was we're, we're progressing through the evolutionary process, right? And so we, we're, we're sort of humanly conscious, but we have all these base urges from our past in terms of the formation of us as an organism, and we have to kind of fight against those and overcome them in, either t in order to progress. Now, whether or not any of that matters, it, it's not relevant to the text, because the text—that's not what the Bible means. The Bible doesn't mean our lower passions, because in the, in the Bible, there is no distinction or cutting up of our passions and our will and our mind and our heart. All these things function about our whole inner life and how we experience it. And all, almost all of our drives can be driven to good things. All of our natural drives have real ends that God has appointed for them that they are supposed to do. Like when I just sit around all day, I feel jittery. I want to do something. God hasn't made me to be idle, and my body will tell me that. It's an urge, right? I could have dated Alexi for 17 years and never had a kid, and not become the head of a family, and to raise children, and to build in the community of humanity. I could have done that, but through God's means of the use of my sexual desires, it drove me to the altar, to the family, to starting a household, to what God intended for my leadership and my ability to provide and my physical prowess. And that was, it was intended. So it, the, the drive drove me to that. It still drives me to my wife. Right? I, I need to eat. Well, if I don't, I'm going to die. God wants us to eat. Therefore, we have a drive to be right now. That doesn't, but it's sin that bends these things. It's sin that creates gluttony. It's sin that creates sloth. It's sin that creates adultery. It, sin is always taking a good bodily passion and changing it into something wicked. When, if we were full of the Spirit, we, the Spirit would fill and animate and drive our urges. Our negative urges, our sinful urges, are not merely drives of our body. They are a bodily drive put 
together with a sinful outlook that together generate what feels like an uncontrollable urge to sin. But God had intended for that drive to be connected with something else, connected to his supremacy and understanding of the world, so that we could unleash that bodily desire onto the world in the way it was intended. The, the, the Bible does not mean that by flesh. And that's where, that's where lots of people in culture get the idea that Christians think sex is bad. We don't. 1 Corinthians 7 commands married couples to have sex. Right? We'll talk about that in like five months. It's false. Christians don't believe that. That's not what we think the flesh is. The flesh is our unregenerate nature. It is, it is the part of our nature that does not have the supremacy of God at the middle. It is the part of us that is self-conscious, not God-conscious. It's the part of us that believes we are the most important, sees the whole world that way. And it is the consciousness we were born into. It is the lifestyle we have lived. It is how the tribe we live in functions. And therefore, it is so deeply rooted in us and that it has control not just of our bodily drives, but of our thought processes and our emotions and the use of our will. It is in everything. And that's why Christians historically have called this the doctrine of depravity or indwelling sin or— um, a number of different things. Um, let me just move, let me just keep going here, okay? But do, do you see the importance of this? That the the idea is not. It's just, but it's that that in and it's now the reason this is important is because you can therefore you cannot overcome this with your mind. Right? The Greeks were like, you've got this body, but you've got the mind, and the mind is powerful. If you train the mind, and if you discipline the mind, the mind can overcome things, right? It's essentially very similar to Buddhism, right? You are steered towards the body. You push the body down. You train the mind. You meditate. You strengthen the mind, right? Because the mind can over—no! Christians go, no, it can't! Because depravity, the flesh, is in everything, it's in the will. It's in the reason. It's in the mind. It's in the drives. It's in the physical body. It's in everything. Now from this, um, some of our secular friends believe that therefore Christians have to hate themselves. In, in fact, um, a, a girl in, at UC Davis who was in the ministry Adam came from gave a talk to the Secular Skeptics Club in which she covered the seven top misconceptions skeptics have about Christians. And one of them was that they, they believe very commonly that Christians are supposed to hate themselves on the basis of this, this doctrine. Now, that's not new. In the early Roman Empire, Christians were called those haters of humanity. Right? They were also called cannibals because they ate the flesh and blood of a certain man. And they were called incestuous because they married their brothers and sisters. It's amazing how surface knowledge gets you really bad misconceptions. And so, this idea—but here, here's the thing that's important to get. Christians are not called to hate themselves because we believe that sin is something that's in us, but we do not believe that the flesh or the sinful nature is essentially who we are. It is part of our being, but not part of our essence. That is— our being, everything that we experience is us. But it's not part of our essence. And here's why we know that. Because someday we will exist without it. That's what the Bible promises. And, and if, if you can exist as you without something, it is not part of your essence. 
And so therefore, the you that is truly you, the you that God will cause to emerge by the rebuilding of the Spirit, that will ultimately come about in the resurrection of the body, in the eradication of the sinful nature, that you, the you that you were always meant to be from the foundations of the world, that you will not include the flesh, the sinful nature, depravity. It will be gone. And so therefore, there is something in your being, in our being, that we desperately hate, yes, but not in the essence of the humanity that God has put in us and is creating in us. So the answer to that is yes and no. There is something that is in us that is worth hating because it will kill us and everybody else if given license. But it is not part of the we that we were made to be. There is a me that is not going to endure this forever. And that is the me that I am meant to love only because God loves it. I should love the me God loves. And God loves the me that is fighting the sinful nature and the me that will one day be free of the sinful nature because of him. All right. Better time management. Third, okay, so if we are spiritual loser magnets, and if idolatry is spiritual adultery and salvation prostitution, what what do we do? What's our duty? Where 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 do we go from here? Right? And Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what he's saying is, what your job is, what our job is, is to put to death the deeds of the body. And in this case, body is parallel to flesh. And so when he says body here, he's referring to what he calls the old man, but body there means flesh, not physical body. Because verse, a couple verses before, when he meant physical body, he literally said your mortal body. Okay? Um, the old school Puritans used to call this the mortification of sin. And one of the best books on Christian spirituality I have ever read is John Owen's the mortif- On the Mortification of Sin um, and the Believer. It's volume six from Banner Trust. It's one of those books where you highlight every word on every page. You have to get by the Puritan. Like, it's kind of like reading the King James Bible. But after about 20 pages, you kind of catch up and you're like, oh, that's what you mean? Okay. Um, it is page for page one of those nourishing books I've ever read. And I'm going to quote from him. If I quote something, I'm quoting John Owen in that book. Okay. Um, what this verse is telling us is, is that we are to enter a disciplined and relentless mortal combat with the flesh. That's what we're to do the rest of our lives. Is we are to enter into a disciplined and relentless mortal combat with the flesh, with indwelling sin. John Owen said this, We must attack the flesh in all its abilities, wisdom, craftiness, and strength. This, says the apostle, must be killed put to death, mortified, that is, to have its power, its life, its vigor, and its strength taken away by the Spirit. And he says this of the seriousness of the task. He says, he that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves off striking before the enemy ceases living, he does but only half his work. Sin does not only still remain in us, but is still acting on us, laboring to bring forth its work. 
If sin ever leaves us alone, we may leave it alone. But remember that sin is never more active than when it seems most silent. And its waters are for the most part deepening when the surface is resting. So our battle against it should not rest, but be vigorous at all times, even when we suspect it least. You could ask the question this way about what we should do. If you have a friend that's a loser magnet, what do you do to help her? I, of course, loser magnets can be men as, as well, okay? But what, what do you do, what do you do, to, what do you do to help her? There's, there's a couple options, right? One thing that you can do is you can go out and you can kill every possible person that could be the next bad relationship, right? That's one way to do it. You just, the problem is, right, there's a lot of candidates and only limited prison terms, right? You, see, you see, in, in one way, you cannot fight sin just by knowing all the idols. There are legion of idols. You've got to help her. You see, you, you, you can't just say, oh, I know what idolatry is, so I'm not going to, I'm going to fight that idol, then this idol, then this idol, then this idol, then this idol. You, you have to turn and do something more general while still more specific. You've got to attack the flesh here. And you've got to, and you have to engage in it as though engaging in mortal combat. Not the video game, the human practice. A couple words on the importance of this. Why do we need to attack the flesh? One is not to die. And, and, and die in verse 13 is used in its most general sense. Die spiritually, die physically, die your faculties, turning, turning wrong sin, being let loose, hurting other people, hurting yourself. I mean, die is used in the spiritual broadest possible sense. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. You will. Owen says this, a couple of quotes from him. Sin, it always abides, therefore it must always be mortified. He says this, but if sin is always attacking, then we must be always killing it. Otherwise, we are like creatures who stop swinging while a fight is still going. Sin is always at work, either viciously or cunningly. But there is not one day in which sin is not foiling or being foiled, prevailing or being prevailed upon while we are in the world. Either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Oops. I'm lost. Okay. The, the second reason would be just to have life, right? That's the other promise in verse 13, right? He says, for if you look according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right? Owen says, the vigor— Okay, this is, this is one of my favorite quotes from the first couple chapters of the book. He says, the vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. The vigor, the power, and the comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. 
neglect the mortal combat necessary with your flesh, your indwelling sin, and you, you will not experience the power, the vigor, and the comfort we're meant to possess and experience daily in joy in life with the Spirit. And then, and then the th- here's the third reason. We need to kill sin in, in the sinful nature because of what it is. Nothing to do with us and what we'll get out of it. Right? The sinful nature produces in us spiritual adultery and salvation prostitution. That's what God sees, and God sees things right. Whether we live or die, if we know what this will produce in us is spiritual adultery and salvation prostitution, do, you, do we want to be that? Even if we get nothing out of it. Therefore, we have to be committed to a lifelong vigorous combat with indwelling sin, seeking always to kill it, knowing it will never fully die in this life, but it can be weakened and pushed back, and that we're to be at that work. Now, can I still move it? Okay. So then, then fourth is, what is our immediate duty? Because if that, here's, because here's the problem. If, if our duty is to kill sin, here's the problem. You can't. You can't. You can't do that. I mean, it's, it's every, let me think about it. Just, just think about trying to defeat the flesh. It's in everything, okay? It's in everything. Therefore, you have nothing pure to strike out from. There is nowhere left to consolidate. It's like fighting in a castle in which every room is taken, and there's nowhere to get everybody together and then reattack from. It's everywhere. You've got no pure place to fight from. And the implication is, and here's why you can't overcome it with the mind, it already has access to your intelligence. Okay? Don't miss this point, especially smart people. Well, especially people who think they're smart, who many of you probably are. (laughs) That does not help you at all. Being intelligent does not help you at all in conquering the flesh, because the flesh has access to your intelligence, so you are fighting an enemy as smart as you are. So if your IQ is 40, that, well, you probably can't understand this, but if it's like 100, then, then here's the good news. Excluding demonic temptation, the flesh bringing temptation in your own heart and life is about as smart as you are. That's a good news. But if your IQ is 180, here's the bad news. The sinful depravity within you has an IQ of 180. And so therefore, you can't just use the mind. You can't just strengthen the mind. You can't—it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And so you can't go, well, I'm smart enough to do it. No, you're not. No, no, you're not. Because its prowess increases with your intelligence. But that's good. That's egalitarian, right? Smart people don't have a leg up. That's—I think that's cool. And then— It has access to your feelings and drives. So here's the thing. If you're a feeler, you can't feel your way out of it either. You can't just follow your heart. 
Because guess what? The flesh, the sinful, it's all up in your heart. It's everywhere. And so you can't go, well, my mind has all these thoughts, but I'm going to follow my heart. Well, okay, off a cliff. <laughs> Jeremiah says that the, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it but God? So you don't, and then your body, it's all, and all your passions and lusts. You just, you can't follow your drives either. You can't, you got nothing to work from in your body and mind and soul and heart. So you can't do it. Um, fighting our sin ourselves is like trying to cure exhaustion with a marathon. It's like trying to cure hunger with fasting. It's like trying to cure loneliness with solitary confinement. Owen says it this way, I could weep over the foolish labor of poor souls who are convinced that they are sinners in need of reform. Meaning that they hear about God. They hear the law and they go, oh, yeah, that stuff is bad. I need to change, right? And he says this, who, who, they're sinners and they need reform and they assume that they should go out and work against it in their own power and convictions. And, and these people set themselves to many perplexing works and duties to keep down sin, but being strangers to the Spirit of God find it always to be in vain. And here's why, because their motivation that comes from the law to resist sin is never as strong as the motivation of sin to live. Um, Owen calls some of these ways of trying to beat sin, moralism, he calls it will worship. I love that. Will worship. I'm going to do it. I'm a tough person. I'm disciplined. You know, I come from an immigrant family. I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm Swedish or something, or German, and I'm just going to I'm just going to not do that. You know, I'm just going to stop. You know? And he calls that will worship. Because that's what it is. Or asceticism, which is essentially discipline worship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my body do it. This is what he says about, about attacking the body by trying to, without, he says, he says, you end up just attacking your body without attacking your flesh. He says, by the asserting of great effort and personal suffering, they work to put down their sin, but their rigid attempts at mortification fall upon their literal physical body rather than their corrupt humanity. That is, they attack not the body of spiritual death, but instead the body in which we live. That's why asceticism cannot ultimately save you. Now, discipline, when linked to the gospel, can. But just being hard on your body can't. And neither can self-atonement, like feeling really, which is feeling really bad. And Owen says, you know, a lot of people, they'll do stuff and they'll feel really bad about it. And they'll think because they feel really bad about it and they feel in that moment that they'll never do it again, makes them feel like they've made some progress against sin when they haven't even touched it. Haven't even touched it. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything. And he says, all these are means by which people try to fight sin, but none of them work. And here's what they think. Because they have concocted a religion of worship, will worship, or discipline worship, or drum worship, they think they're being Christians, and they're not. It doesn't work. They think Christianity doesn't work. They think that God is a God who says, I'll love you, but really is, I'll love you slow or never, or I won't really help you. And then they'll think that this is the one who doesn't provide, and they'll turn to this one, and that 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 one. And it will happen to you, even if you've made a commitment to Jesus and you've heard the law and you know that you should do good things because then God will love you and you're trying and it's not working and you're kind of hanging in there, but you're, you know you're strong enough to make it. No, you, you are not going to make it to the end. 
You are going to implode. You need to recognize you cannot win this fight. So let me conclude this way. Do you remember how Romans 8 started? He, well, he wasn't talking about, he wasn't talking to bad people who needed to be good. He said this. He says, now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. You see what he's saying? He's saying this is an operation not done in your own power. It is a pow- done in the power of God. See, your, our duty is to kill sin, but our immediate duty, our immediate duty is to be converted. Our immediate duty is to attack unregeneracy with regeneration that God does. Our, uh, the, it's to attack the will of sin with a new will that comes from the Spirit of God who comes in and gives us a new will to fight so that there's a real conflict and that there's some real resources on our side. If I came to you and I said, I have a piece of paper that says somebody is coming to kill you, and I'm going to, in order to prepare you for them to come, I'm going to give you the piece of paper. Is that, what you, is that what you need? Is that what you need? You need a rocket propel grenade. That's what you need. The, see, see, this is the law. The law is you're, going, you're not doing well. But it's very easy to go, oh gosh, I should work really hard. This will help me. No, it's not going to help you. You need the rocket propelled grenade of the Holy Spirit. And the rocket propelled grenade of the Holy Spirit comes by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Amen. Right? You put you the full weight of your trust in God, in his provision in Jesus, who died for you, who then he gives you Christ by— he, the, see, once you believe that, he unites Christ to you. So now there is the you that you were meant to be. There is the sinful nature that is killing you. But now there is the Spirit of God united you, bringing Christ, his righteousness, his will, his, his thoughts. There is a power that will enter, and you cannot beat sin without it. And with it, you cannot not beat sin. You cannot fail. You cannot fail. But, it, but your, your duty is to kill sin. Your immediate duty is to come to Jesus. And if you've never done that, you should do it right now. And if you have done it, but you're living like this, the first step is not to try harder. It's to come back to Jesus. It is to do this. Still shooting. It is to come back, to reconnect, to ask for a fresh filling of the Spirit, to stop trying to succeed by will worship or drama worship or asceticism worship, and to turn to Jesus. Listen, we, we all need—listen, let, let me just end with this. Do you know how—do you know how God ends this discussion of our whoredom in Ezekiel? This is what he says in chapter 36, 22-27. He says this, Therefore, I'll end with this. This is the last word. Therefore, he says, Say to the house of Israel, right? More bad news? This is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, 
O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. But I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, and the sovereign Lord declares this. Now listen to what he says in verse 24. For I will take you I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land and I will sprinkle you clean with water and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws. And listen, this is to the exact same people he was talking to in 16. That, that woman, that people, that humanity, th- that is true. And then he says, look, that's what you did. He said, but this is what I'm going to do. I am going to put this in you. And so friends, listen, Idolatry is spiritual adultery and salvation prostitution. And we have all engaged in it. We have all engaged in it. We all continue at some level, at some depth probably, to engage in it. And it is, the problem is that we are a sin-filled loser magnet, that there is indwelling sin, there is a flesh, and it is after you, and it is after us, and it will pull us away to idols unless it is mortified, unless it is killed, unless you and I engage in lifelong mortal combat with it. And that is your duty, but it is not your immediate duty. Your immediate duty is to come to Jesus and to cry out for the power of the Spirit to give you a new mind and a new heart to give a new direction to all your urges, to the glory and supremacy of God, and to believe that this one will love you well. Father, thank you that you love us this much. Thank you that you tell the truth so boldly. And thank you that you promise such great power. And I pray, Father, that you would help anybody here who is not yours in that way, who has not come to you and and asked for your spirit and experienced regeneration and received the righteousness that comes from Christ by a gift by simply believing that comes from you, Father, I pray that that would, ha- that would be happening right now. I pray that that would happen very soon. I pray that, that, that you would do the work of regeneration in their hearts. And I pray for those of us who so quickly and so commonly trade the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit for will worship or drama worship or some of these other ways of being religious. Father, would you turn us and turn us and turn us and turn us to you and to the power of your Spirit so that we will be joy-filled and that our hearts will be moved to follow you. Help us recognize the weight of what it is and the remedy that is our immediate duty to receive. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.